The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofsted. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. Hello there. Hey George, how are you? Let's let's talk about the evidence. The the two-page supplementary from the crime scene. They're talking about um, the coat, the keys, plucked and cut, um, a head hair, and so on. The problem with it is, is any time that you have a crime scene, the science is there when it's fresh, but it deteriorates over time. And over 45 years, you're almost going to have no science in order to be able to put that together. Was there no science? Or did science have to catch up? The lab in Morton, Illinois, writes to the district attorney, I was surprised that any male DNA was indicated after so many years. And again, the record reiterates that the murder weapon can't be tested. It had been left in an ISU classroom for years. I would love to meet the cop that gave the murder weapon away to the college professor. That's horrible shit. If you stepped inside a newsroom in the 1970s, the soundtrack was the constant chatter of a police scanner. Well-tuned ears could get to a crime scene sometimes quicker than the officers. So I was I was a very trusted reporter. I mean, police just literally gave me everything. I I didn't betray confidences and I always stayed, had the hell out of the way. I didn't put my fingers in bullet holes at crime scenes. I didn't do stupid stuff. This longtime reporter wrote for The Panagraph, a daily paper that's still publishing after 185 years. But today's police beat is quite a different story. I don't know exactly when it happened, but all their frequencies are now closed And the media can't even find out if there's a fire or a drive-by shooting or any spot news at all. So it's very hard for a media to, to cover news when they don't even know that anything's happening. I, I remember being in the newsroom that night. And there was a delay in us finding out about it because it was the holidays and we had a scant staff and normal police tried to call us and tell us about it on our on the telephone, which was how you communicated in the 1970s before email. Back then, there wasn't really much emphasis on cold cases. There was no social media. It just kind of got forgotten. And when you have a small staff who has so many things they need to get done, 
for the morning paper, you know, we didn't really look back. We were trying to get today's news done. But at the Vedette, the college daily on the campus of Illinois State, the murder of Carol Rofsted was front page and often revisited. Good afternoon. In fact, this journalist has never been able to forget. The more that I've thought about it, and after talking with George, I feel God is saying, relax, you're okay. And this is, this is the journey you need to take, and don't worry about it, I've got this. Uh, student Association is going to start a weekly newspaper. I understand I'm 20 years old, uh, but he's going to pay me, you know, and I would have an office and I would have a staff and so forth. So I said, okay, and got in bed with the devil. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so despicable, tell me I'm Chapter 7 The Rear View Mirror. I graduated from high school in 1973, and I was the, I was voted the top student journalist in the state of Illinois. I won this big award. And I started at ISU immediately, like a month after graduation. And I went to the Vedette and I, the student newspaper there and applied and I got the job. And in two months, I was the news editor in my freshman year. And, um, the next year, I was a sophomore, and I was nominated to, I guess you'd say compete or whatever, to be named the editor of the Vedette. And people were so sure, and I was so sure, that I was going to get this job that that uh, when I didn't get it, it was a shock. You know, they'd even thrown a party for me. And I was there, as a matter of fact. And, and I had only covered as a story because I covered the Illinois Board of Regents. And as the essay president, he had a, a seat on the Regents. And so anyway, uh, he came to me a couple days after the big disappointment. And he said, you know, this really stinks. You should have gotten the job. The guy who got it is is a doof, and and a lot of us feel really bad about it, and we're afraid that you're going to drop out or you know, and and he said so. Uh, Student Association is going to start a weekly newspaper, and we'd like you to be the editor in chief of that. And he was very sincere, and Henry was there, and it was like, we want to do this, that you can make a great contribution to the university and to student association 
if we have our own newspaper, because I don't trust the vedette is going to do right by us. Henry was an accounting major and this editor's friend. He was also the running mate of They were shaking up politics on campus under the banner, the Boston Tea Party. There were promises and what seems now like a bit of paranoia. I mean, this was a large organization. It had probably, it, it filled a two-story building um, with offices and so forth. And I would say there were probably 10 or 12 major departments that were directly under his supervision as, as president. And yeah, it was a big deal. He just said, you know, we want to get the essay out there, student association out there and and promote the stuff that we're doing. And he says, you know, I and I said, I'm not going to lie about anything. I'm not going to pump anything up. I said, I'll I'll do the truth. But but he was not um, overly, you know, bossy about it and, and didn't ask me to do anything unethical. And uh, and that was good. There may have been surprise when this journalist didn't get the vedette job. But it couldn't begin to compare to the shock of winning the election. Was he on best behavior with the administration? Like, why did they dig him? I, I don't know. Because during, during the campaign to be elected, uh, you know, it was almost a, a joke. Are you kidding me? Because he wasn't, you know, a stellar personality even then, you know. And that the fact that they won, I remember us sitting at the vedette the night the returns came in, and we went, Jesus, how the hell did he pull that off? How the hell did they get those votes? And I asked Henry once, I said, how did you guys do this? You know, I can't imagine. But the turnout wasn't very high. And he made sure that all his Tea Party voters went and voted. I'm sure that he had every one of his minions out the day of the election lining them up and saying, you better go and you better vote. And and they pulled it off and it was shocking. It was shocking. But you know, let's let's be fair. He is really smart. And he his tentacles really reach deep. And he may get a lot of stuff done. And he did. He did. I think he surprised people, and it it started deteriorating over time. Well, now we know he was putting some of the money in his pocket, and then you got into him screaming and yelling people in, in the in the office building, and dragging people in and verbally destroying them and stuff like that. And then as as I got sucked in and so on, it was. Just subtle threats and you owe me and pay off and that, you know, it was like mafia Don crap. In a moment, a murder on campus, a shocking resemblance, suspicion of embezzlement, and the president lands in jail. Until we did the coup, they, they had no ability legally in their minds to remove him from from office or get him off the campus. 
Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. He was reeling me in. It's cliche, but true. Was a big man on campus, the unlikely president of the Student Association. He had his own newspaper now, and people under his supervision, like our talented young editor. There were some of us, like Henry and I, and a couple other people, that kind of became his personal assistants, you know? Can you go pick up some dry cleaning for me? Can you give me a ride here? Can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? And over time, it grew to, hey, let's go. I want to go up to Chicago for the weekend. Let's go. You drive in your car, and I'll pay for everything else. On the SA dime? Uh, On dime. Yeah. Only I later found out Henry confessed to me that had made him go and open a phony bank account at one of the banks in downtown Normal. And Henry was the bookkeeper for the SA, Student Association, and Henry figured out how to siphon money off of the Student Association and deposit it in this bank for personal use. There was a lengthy investigation into the finances, but we can find no evidence of anyone being charged. Henry and I were very close, and and Henry and I were both deathly afraid of him. I mean, we knew that he and I were, you know, we were going to die because we, we knew too much. We knew too much. We'll get back to the alleged embezzlement scheme. Our editor remembers returning to campus after Christmas. Carol had been bludgeoned and killed, and there was a wanted sketch printed in the paper. When the eyewitness drawings came out, it was over. It was over. Because that one drawing is the epitome of I mean, was known for his stocking cap, and was known for his full-length army greatcoat. Known for it. It, it was, you could have done a cartoon of it. I mean, and it's him. So when we saw that, we said, that's it. That's it. He did it. And everybody was talking about how it was, you know, a tall guy and a, with a beard and all this and a short guy. And the person who had chauffeured and done so many favors for the SA president was about to get a knock on the door. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I want to say it was February or March after the the murder, after Rothstead. And um, they came to my, my house. I live with my parents. And they said, we want to talk to you about I think they tricked me. 
because the eyewitness drawings and stuff were all over the place. A tall guy and a with a beard and a short guy, right? So the normal police officer says, you know, we don't want to hurt your feelings, but on the other hand, we gotta we gotta be really straight with you here. And I was like, okay. And they said, everybody knows you're trans, you're transsexual. And the way they put it, that, that you really think you're a guy. And and we we know that you dress in guys' clothing. And I said, yeah. And he says, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, we understand how things can happen. But are you the other guy? Because people think you are. Now imagine me as a 20-year-old looking at this police officer and he's saying, people have identified you as a possible suspect because dressed up as a guy, he even said, do you you wear a false beard sometimes? And I said, no, I do not. And I don't own a army long coat and I don't wear a little stocking cap. And I said, it was not me. I was home with my parents, you know, and I was panicked. I was totally panicked. And I was saying, I'll take a polygraph. I'll I'll give you my fingerprints. I'll give you, you know, whatever you want, but no, it's not me. And they let me squirm like this for an hour. And I was terrorized by this. It was, it was a total PTSD moment. And, and I was suicidal about it and it, at the and I'm sitting there thinking I'm dead that's it my life is over you know I'm somehow going to get roped into this and they're going to they're going to prosecute me for murder and so then they did the good guy bad guy because another one came in and said well okay I believe you I don't think the other person is you and I said good and he said but will you help us We know it's but we we need evidence. And I said, like what? And they said, his whereabouts that day. And and I and they said it, it can't be verbal. It can't be you know. He says we need some physical evidence. And I said, well, I can try. Give us something that shows where he was that day or that night. And I was like, okay. A couple days later, was out of town and I was in his office and I saw his, his calendar diary, his planner, and I opened it and I looked at the date, December 23rd. But I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what he had written there. It was like in code. I did notice that the other days afterwards, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, were suspiciously blank. So I took it. I took the planner and I took it to normal police department and I handed it over and I said, okay, you know, if he ever finds out, if you ever tell him that I did this, I'm dead. 
The official record we received through Freedom of Information lists evidence item number 11025263, three notebooks, miscellaneous papers, and one diary. Diary and notes of... Did Carol have a diary? Here's Carol's sister, Laura. Not that I know of. I can almost, like, see that it's, it's a strange notations and so on that I didn't understand. But it was several months after I had provided the diary. And I'm walking, I'm crossing the street in downtown Bloomington in the middle of a, of a day. And uh, somebody grabs my arm and spins me around. And it's He's got my arm in a grip and he says, where's my damn diary? And I thought, I'm dead. I broke away from him. I ran into Roland's department store and I hid. I hid in the store. So, and, he, and I don't know if he followed me, but he didn't find me, but I waited three hours and I was freaked, you know, but uh, so I think he hung around for a while and then I was gone because I got a call from a pantograph reporter saying, we want to talk to you about and I said, nope, not talking to you. And a week later, I up and moved to New York City. Yep, sure did. I I worried that they were still suspicious of me because I never heard, I'd given the diary and I never heard from them again. Let me tell you, until yesterday, I have always occasionally worried. Is there going to be a knock at the door someday and I'm under arrest for the murder of Carol Rofstad? Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. It's February 1976. The Delta Zetas were back on campus after holiday break, but they were in mourning for their smart, beautiful, irreverent friend, Carol. Do you think that someone was watching you guys, stalking you guys related to the cellar? I think someone was watching us definitely that weekend. Um, And I felt, I felt, Carol felt that way more than me. I didn't really feel someone was watching me. Carol felt like someone was watching her. You know, we went out together. Um, you know, we were still there. Everyone went home, except for a few people. And like I said, there was some guys who were the AGRs. And a lot of them were local. And and uh, we just kind of went out together. And um, we went to a, how did we go to a party? And they were coming to, someone was coming to pick me up first and then coming to pick up Carol. 
And Carol called me and said, why are you coming soon? And I'm like, yeah, he's not supposed to be here until, you know, whatever. And I said, no, um, but it shouldn't be too much longer. I got to finish getting dressed. And she was like, well, can't you just stay on the phone? And I'm like, I can't, I got to finish doing this. It wasn't like now where you could move your cell phone and you could, you could take a shower and talk to somebody, but then it was in the kitchen. You couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So, um, she really did not want to hang up the phone with me. She goes, well, you know, let me know when you're coming or come as soon as something worse of that effect. And I was like, why is she being this way? At the time, thinking, why is she being this way? And then when we separated, which was like, I don't know, it was the next night or the night after that. It was like almost right after that, we separated um, from the cellar and she clearly wanted me to keep walking with her. And I'm like, I'm going another direction. You know, I don't go that way. And she's like, yeah, 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 that's right. You know, and in retrospect, and that was so soon after it happened, my mind immediately went to like, she's been, someone has been watching her. When we began to investigate background, there were several disturbing findings. So I did a records check in Bloomington at the clerk's office. This is genuine human investigator, Ali Daskalopoulos. Let's see here. There was a battery charge in 74, which was dropped. Um, she, she said the suspect was rageful and punched and attacked other women. There, there, I don't know. I don't know what mental illness that is, but just unbelievably explosive temper. And if you if you rejected him, and it's whether you rejected him sexually or you rejected him socially, or you know whatever. If you criticized anything about him, he lost it. He lost his cookies. Let's go back to the Delta Zeta house. Early fall, 1975. He just came in the front door, and we were just standing there, and Carol just happened to walk up the stairs because her apartment was down, down the basement. So she just came up the stairs at the same time. There wasn't a lot of room because the door opened and all that stuff. And, um, and I said, Carol, this is... You know, and... And Carol did her Carol thing, you know, which was you hang around with all those political activists. And I went, well, Carol. And and then I could, the look on his face was unbelievable change. He got angry and he started to say something. I said, she's just kidding. She goes, no, I'm not. And she just left. And she just went back downstairs, like, in that quick encounter. And I said, we need to go, right? And so we left. And I said, wow, you took that hard. And he's like, well, I don't like being called that. And I said, she's just kidding, right? And that was it. You know, that was kind of off to the meeting and never said anything more about her. Um but he he was pissed very quickly pissed 
And inappropriately so, wouldn't you say? Totally inappropriately so. You know, it's like, can't you take a joke? <laughs> kind of thing. They're going to send me the dispositions from the cases that he had, but I did get all the case numbers for any cases he was involved in in McLean County. Because he's got these three. Those are the attacks on women we can show to be documented. But the case that brought consequences was to happen just weeks after Carol Rofsted died. from the ISU by dead, March 4, 1976. The McLean County Circuit Clerk has released the police report explaining exactly what charges were levied against The police report states that he willingly, unlawfully, knowingly did strike. Oh, Pamela Friedman. She is, she is the one that after that. Yeah, that's the one. Out of the blue comes up and was very high, or, or drunk, or whatever. Did grab her by the throat. Started this high baby routine, and Pam was nobody to mess with. And strike her across the face with the back of his fist. There was no pretext of a possible relationship or anything else. This guy was just a fucking lunatic. then threw her to the ground and again choked her. She said buzz off and uh, he started punching her in the face and had knocked her down. Causing bruises to her left eye and pain in the throat and face. Jumped on top of her and and had his hands wrapped around her throat. Thereby causing bodily harm. She told me Uh, You know, it was a very emotional conversation. She said that uh, she could not breathe and that he was strangling her and that she was was praying to say goodbye to her mother because she thought she was about to die. He, he admitted that he did it, and he was trying to figure out a way to get Pam to not cooperate or drop charges. You know, that was his usual M.O. for dealing with things. This is himself being quoted. It's an unfortunate circumstance, and I am personally apologetic to Student Association, the Academic Senate, and to the student body. I hope everyone realizes this is a personal problem for me and not the student association. He's diabolical. And I use the word diabolical because not only is he violent, but he's brilliant. If anybody was going to wriggle out of this thing, it was going to be because he would play whatever card he had to play. He, he just knew how to get out of it. Now, in the end, he didn't get out of the, the uh, Pam Friedman thing entirely because I understand that he got, he got like a week in jail or something like that and probation. And, and he probably enjoyed it, frankly.
It's been almost 50 years since the editor has revisited these memories. She thought she had left them behind in the proverbial rearview mirror. But that's where she may have seen this man most clearly. A week or so after Carol's murder on a drive to Chicago. A previous student association president by the name of Scott Nixon, he was killed in an accident. He was hit by a semi. A lot of people from ISU were going to go. Henry arranged that I would drive, of course, that he and would ride with me in the back seat. And this sorority gal, um, she was like Panhell president, Jackie would ride with us in the, in the front seat with me. We were driving through campus on Phil and drove past the house. And I said, man, what's what about this? You know, and to this point, I didn't know that he knew her or whatever, you know? I had no suspicions, anything. God almighty, I feel so bad for her family and so forth. And says, she's an effing bitch. And I looked up, I remember, I looked up in the rearview mirror and made eye contact with Henry. And the look on his face match the look on my face like uh god did you hear that and i said yeah so jackie turned around a little bit and she said oh you knew her and he said oh yeah she's a bitch did he do it the truth is worth knowing. No matter what, no matter what the circumstances, the truth is worth knowing. That here all of us for all these years have been saying, he did it. Well, what if he didn't? Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. Initially, it was just a quick story for an investigative journalism class, and that was going to be it. Two years, countless phone calls, hundreds of interviews and documents. And where are we now? I con I contacted the normal police and told them who I was and what we had. And um, I was hoping that they would do what I had been doing for many years and to... Uh, work as sort of like a murder task force and combine efforts in order to try to get the case solved. Well, well, silly me. I swore I would never go back to that campus. The day I graduated, I was done. I was like, I'm not living with this nightmare anymore. I have to go forward. I could take a bunch of 10-year-old kids and say a crime happened here and a lady got hurt. And a guy who lived 50 feet away came home with covered blood. What do you think? Everyone would say, go knock on the frickin' door and take him to the police station. And I believe everything you hear. Oh, I'm worse.
Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer Alexandra Duskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator Demetria Kaladinos. Voiceover recreation Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kaladimos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kaladimos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.